Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. Happy New Year. I hope everyone had a fun and safe holiday season and you got through unscathed. And of course, thank you for all your support in 2023. If you want to continue supporting the podcast to ensure that Indefensible Plants can continue to happen week in and week out, consider picking up some of our merch. We still have great customizable merch. There's always a style that's going to work for you, and there's a lot of really cool designs to show off to the world. But that's enough about that. Let's talk about today's episode, which involves one of the most interesting topics in the world, and that is seeds, specifically relating to seed dormancy and all of the cool cryptobiotic changes that occur within seeds to both ensure longevity, but also wake them up out of their dormancy to germinate. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Grace Fleming, who takes a really fascinating approach to looking at the inner workings of seeds. I don't want to steal any of her thunder because there are so many different threads here, and as you will hear throughout the conversation, this is research that touches every aspect of life on this planet, whether we realize it or not, and there's so many cool things to discover. So with that, let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Grace Fleming. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Grace Fleming, I am so excited to have you on the podcast, but for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. So my name is Dr. Grace Fleming. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Science at uh, Michigan State University, and I study seeds. I am especially interested in seed longevity. And more broadly, like, what is it that seeds are doing while they're seeds? What are they? <laughs> I love that because that actually is a, it's kind of, you know, when I'm looking at how do you start these sorts of conversations, that's it's where my head was going. But before we get to that, I'm really curious, like, was it always seeds for you? I mean, or did it kind of start with plants or just nature in general? Like, how did you find yourself looking at seeds? It was... um happenstance it was luck <laughs> it was absolutely just the the fates conspired nice. and, and brought me here so i have a bachelor's degree from st john's college which is a liberal arts school that has a campus in annapolis maryland and a mm. campus in santa fe new mexico and it has the great books program nice so um my made I have a degree in philosophy with a minor in history of math and science. Wow. Okay. And when I graduated, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And <laughs> I thought about a lot of options. And one that seemed interesting was art conservation, mm. like working in an art museum and taking care of textiles or paintings or something. And then I got. Um, an internship at the National Gallery of Art because I grew up in the D.C. area and the community college there, Montgomery College, had a connection with the National Gallery. So I just like happened to get this internship. Huh. And um, my job was spreading acrylic paint samples on slides and then letting them dry and then storing them. Wow. Literally watching paint dry. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, and like, that's fine. It's a, a tedious task, but sure. it was, you know, in pursuit of a nobler goal, but I got to see what the conservators did all day and they, um, have a lot of artistic skills mm. and like hand skills, really important. And you're not allowed to edit the art mm. that you're conserving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> you're not, you don't have your own ideas. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't really. I didn't want to pursue that. Yeah, makes sense. And I got a job working at a frame shop, huh. putting frames around art. And I was on my way to work one day thinking about what I would do next. And I was on my bike and I stopped at a stoplight and I looked down and I was like, grass, it's photosynthesizing. I haven't thought about it. That's so cool. I'm going to go to grad school and study that. Holy cow. Wow. <laughs> so um, that's what I did. Wow. 
I went to Colorado State University and I got my PhD in molecular biology. And when I graduated, there was a postdoc opportunity at the National Laboratory for Germplasm Resources and Preservation, um, the, the seed vault, yeah, yeah. Um, which is at on the campus at Colorado State in Fort Collins. And so that's where I ended up next. And my work there brought me to studying seeds. So I was focused on looking at um, changes in the molecules, like the molecular biology of seeds as they're stored in age. And wow. since then, I've been like, seeds are the best. <laughs> I didn't know until I saw. And now um everyone around me agrees seeds are the best and yeah whether they want they know they agree or not like you will make them (laughs) i love that energy (laughs) that is a really cool journey to get to where you are today and it's it's anytime you can really like shine light on a perfect example of how there is no recipe to finding your way in any of this like this is a really great example of that and I'm curious, you know, I really benefited from the philosophy classes I took, but a lot of people got through science never having to take one. Do you think that background kind of helped a bit unexpectedly? It helped a huge amount. Awesome. In different ways. So one thing that comes up immediately for me is that um, the program at St. John's is reading the original works by these famous authors and then discussing them mm-hmm. so aristotle plato kant newton like whatever yeah we read those papers or those works by those people which meant when i got to grad school and i was reading research papers i was like this isn't hard i can do this <laughs> which having now worked with undergrads in this very different background uh, my students now are all from the crop and soil science major huh. they are not happy to read scientific <laughs> papers they haven't had to read anything like it before and it's right. hard and just to, to be able to say yeah it's hard but i'm not dumb maybe the authors are writing badly and that's yeah. why i don't understand it like that's very that's been huge that's incredible but, I love that perspective because, yeah, it is a shame so many people that end up in the sciences are robbed of that experience or at least being able to be exposed. Whether you realize what you're being exposed to or not, it it, it makes a huge difference. And that's that's really nice to have that from like the proof is in the pudding. (laughs) Here we are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And like my the work I did in my Ph.D. was studying cell wall structure and it was related to biofuels and hmm. getting cellulosic biofuels to work. And then, you know, I completely jumped course. Like molecular biology is still molecular biology, but yeah. I really didn't know very much about seeds. But sure. I, I can do this. <laughs> Bingo. I can learn about this. Yeah, it's kind of like the lens that colors all of your investigations moving forward. And and to me, it's like a new way to unlock different doors and, and a new appreciation for a subject matter, whether you pursue it. I mean, you've got an illustrious publication record to show it worked, right? But, you know, yeah. a, a, just a different way of looking at things, whether you end up using it practically or not, it, that's valuable. Yeah. Reading science, it's so coded and you don't even realize it when you've been doing it for a while it's like oh yeah like blah 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 the method section i never read those unless i'm actually recreating the methods yeah but these are all things that if you don't know them could be a real barrier to big time to pursuing science big time yeah but here you are you've pursued it and you're pursuing it in a really interesting way and to come back to what you had hinted at with what are seeds even like you kind of take them for granted, right? Because like even as kids, a lot of us are exposed to, hey, just here's a little seed packet, a little science experiment thing that, you know, a loved one gives you for a present. And then you just move forward to the plant phase. But, you know, the more you dive into it, the more I started to think in my own head, especially reading your work, I'm like, it's almost like you're studying a different organism, right? It, it's, it is a plant eventually, but 
it, it's so different than what it becomes. And like when you start to compare it to like what we're most familiar with, which is our vertebrate biology, it, oh boy, <laughs> it is a wild <laughs> alien world. And you're looking at it at a variety of scales, albeit still in small little packages. Yeah. And this is another place where a philosophy background is coming in really <laughs> handy is because, you know, as I'm doing tedious laboratory tasks, counting out 10 groups of 100 seeds or whatever, <laughs> I can think in the back of my head, like, what is a seed? Yes. What does it mean to be alive? <laughs> Are they dead? How do we know if they're dead? What does death look like? And um, it's this connection to other thinkers. Like I know I'm on this like conversation thread that has spanned nah. the ages and that's exciting. And um, it just helps keep that work in context of like, yeah, I'm doing something boring, but the seeds themselves don't know that they're boring Sure, <laughs> if they know anything. Yes. Um, you know, yes, the task at hand may be tedious or boring, but the bigger questions that you're trying to answer aren't. And a lot of them have like fundamental applications, you know, in a variety of ways, probably some unknown at this point into a variety of aspects of not only the biology and ecology of species, but the way we interact with them, the way they support our livelihood, our way of life as we know it. But to get at that, I, I love the sort of thinking across scales thing. And in our early correspondence, we mentioned the importance of micro RNAs and what that's doing. And like, okay, some of us might be familiar with what RNA is compared to DNA, but you know, the, mRNA has been a big topic of the last few years, and I don't think anyone I've talked to really understands what's going on there. So why those structures in particular when you're thinking about all of the work you're doing, looking at seed dormancy, why seeds break dormancy, that sort of stuff? So I want to start from a very big picture thing and then move into like what's happening in the seeds. Okay, yeah. So big picture we have what we call the central dogma where there's DNA, which is transcribed into mRNA, which is translated into protein. So the M in mRNA stands for messenger and it's what lets the message get moved from the nucleus where the DNA is out into the cytoplasm where the proteins are. And so it's this transient molecule. Mm. It's made in response to whatever the conditions are, like this gene needs to be turned on. So the mRNA gets transcribed. Um, and then when that job is done, the mRNA gets broken down, it goes away. And so it's not meant to hang out for a very long time in a single cell. Mm -hmm. And then also its job is transient in that it's just the intermediary messenger the ultimate goal is getting it turned into a protein right. and the protein does the actual work. Now seeds are the funny thing, as we've said, they, most of the seeds that I work with are called orthodox seeds, which just means that they can survive being dried to be quite dry. So the stuff I'm saying isn't necessarily true about the other kinds of seeds Sure, that have to stay wet. In other words, these are the ones we can store long-term-ish. <laughs> exactly. Relative. Yeah. So in these orthodox seeds, they're in whatever fruit structure on the mother plant, they're drying down. And as that's happening they are accumulating mRNA that they are not going to use at that moment. Mm. These are long stored mRNAs and they will be used when the seed is germinating. Oh, wow. So just the discovery of these, like the existence of these, it's such an interesting little detour into the <laughs> yeah. science history here so they were first recognized in the late 60s in cotton huh. seeds and 
because they have this really transient role in actively living cells, it was doubted and questioned. And it was just like, are you sure that's what you're finding? And it's not a contamination and it's not like an accident or, and are they really needed for germination or is it leftovers from when the seed was becoming a Mm. mature seed? Like what is going on? And in the late sixties, they couldn't really tell exactly what they were. They didn't have, you know, sequencing technologies. Like we have to. It's like, we've detected them. Now what? Yeah. Wait a few decades. Like, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a large amount of mRNA. Mm. <laughs> then in the 80s, there was more work done where they could use radio labeled things. So radioactive molecules, they could figure out like when mRNA started to be made. They could separate like the fresh RNA and a germinating seed from the old RNAs. And then in the early 2000s, people um, used different drugs to block transcription, which is making new mRNAs, or to block translation, which is making proteins. And if you blocked transcription, the seeds could still germinate. Hmm. So no new mRNAs were being made. Weird. They were germinating just with what was stored. If you block translation, they did not germinate. Interesting way to figure out sort of the pathway there. I love that. And yeah, sort of the decade old experience of like, okay, we know they're there. We need technology to figure out why. (laughs) And then to figure out like, okay, what sort of proteins are these mRNAs encoding? Are they like... Yeah, what are they doing? Wow. So they do a lot of things. There is a long period of time then, if I'm understanding that correctly, where we're like, we know they're in there. We don't know what kinds they are, what they're doing. Like it 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 really was like presence, absence, and then slowly chipping away at like, okay, this one might do this. Or if we block this here, this ha you know, that, that's so wild to think of just we have it spelled out now. Like this is the great thing about writing things down. Like you get to track the history of the science and then know okay, relatively recently, only now have we had the technology to go really deep into why this is. Yeah, and it's wild looking back, especially at the work done in the 80s, because radioactive stuff can be more dangerous and less dangerous. (laughs) It's not my favorite thing to do. My husband works with uh, C-14 stuff. It's that's not such a big deal. It's right. just like looking at these experiments, like I would not want to touch this. <laughs> <laughs> you were not wearing anything? What? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they probably were some protection, like that part of it. Okay, them. that's good. But they were generating lots of waste too, like, ah. <laughs> yeah. But even then, like what they were doing was tracking like when during germination does transcription get turned on? Like when does the seed start being able to make new transcripts? And if you look at a relatively young seed versus a seed that's been stored for a long time, are there differences Mm. in the timing of when transcription turns on or like how much mRNA is transcribed? They could get this very holistic view of the landscape without knowing a lot of the details. And now that we've got all these details worked out, I love being able to still step back and be like, okay, but big picture overall, <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. And it matches up with what they had found. We just have more, it tells a more complete story, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the completeness that, completeness that I, I love about work like yours is, you know, a lot of people will look at sciences outside of it, especially and say, oh, that's reductionist thinking as if it's a bad thing to kind of narrow it down. But if you're connecting it to the big picture, you can figure out a lot big picture. You can also figure out a lot small picture, but a lot of really fun stuff happens when you start to connect those dots and follow the pathway from big idea to the small interworkings. And that's where I think this, like on your website, it says cryptobiologic 
assessments. And to me, that's like so cool because it's like the hidden biology and that's seeds. I mean, they're this literal black box of information. A lot of complicated stuff is going on in there, especially when you start to think about how long these can lay dormant, whether in a seed bank or in the soil. And people like you are just trying to figure out these little threads of how is this all connected? And, and that's that's so cool to think of the scientific process that way. And and yes, be reductionist, but also compare it to the big picture stuff too. Like, let's not lose the forest for the trees. Yeah, I mean, it would be so cool. We When I started my postdoc work, we were hoping, like, not really hoping. No one ever expected it to actually <laughs> fall out this way. But, like, wouldn't it be nice if we found that there was, like, a single gene and that mRNA was damaged and then the seed didn't germinate anymore? Wow. That would be, like, (laughs) so easy. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, that doesn't seem to be the case. It's biology, after all. You know, we can dream. (laughs) Yeah. But reality. But, big picture, damage to mRNA can be quantified so Mm. we can say like there's this rna is like a five on a scale of one to ten and this one is seven so the one with a seven like overall has less damage right ten is the best (laughs) (laughs) gotta code it somehow right yeah and like I'm saying these numbers, they're not arbitrary numbers. There's this device that can tell you the RNA integrity number. Man. Oh, that's so, so cool. That's like neural networks were used to make some algorithm, like the black box of AI is coming in here. Yeah. Like we don't exactly know how it spits out the number, but it does and it's repeatable and validatable. Like it's Right. A number you can trust. <laughs> and people every step of the way have been involved in this process. It's not like, yeah, we just it it seems to work, so let's play with it. And that's another thing I love to drive home, especially to, you know, people that are maybe later in education or career that are like, How do I get involved? I just know coding or I know AI or something. All of this had some human involvement to invent, to code, to make happen, and you are working whether actually collaborating or through the timeline of just how this stuff gets pieced together scientifically and then utilized with a wide range of scientists and and engineers and coders and it it just you name it there's so many different avenues to get involved in this kind of work yeah i mean when i started looking into how rna integrity like what is this how do people think about it the main field that it's relevant for is human biology Mm -hmm. and looking at samples for transcriptomics where you're looking at like what are all of the RNAs and how abundant are they in like biopsy samples or cadaver samples or just blood so you can say like I'm doing some study and the blood was taken and then you know the RNA in the blood is intact and it's just this very common metric. So 10 is only ever found <laughs> with human samples. Plants never get a 10. Oh, dang. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. That's They're better than us at so many different things. So we'll take the 10. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, but to see like people did studies on like a time course of how quickly does RNA decay in a cadaver or these formalin fixed samples and that knowledge was relevant to me figuring out like well what could be happening in seeds and what couldn't be happening in seeds when they're at temperature or they're frozen like wild the rna is still rna so as a small molecule it's made of the same backbone it's got the same physical properties whether it's found inside of a human cell or inside of a plant cell so this vast literature on human rna was like totally available for me yeah yes (laughs) i mean as different as animals and plants are it is still that mind blow that i don't care how far in the sciences i've got like we are made of the same stuff and there's a lot of different ways to make working things that can self-perpetuate. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. 
So, okay, we have this mRNA storage thing going on. Is it the same? Like, where are these being stored in the seed itself? Is it different by species? Is it different by groups? Or like, it's weird to think of like, you look at a dry seed, you shake it and you hear little mRNAs bouncing around in there. Like, <laughs> how's that kind of shake out before we even get to like function and, and long-term sort of looking at seeds? So that's a great question. We don't have great answers yet. Awesome. I love mysteries. Yeah, like, <laughs> this is the great part about working in this kind of organism Yeah. at the moment that we're in. Um, there's a lot of background knowledge, not just with human RNA, but also with plants generally and genetics. Um, but the last like push in seed molecular biology work was in the 80s. And now it's resurging. Now there's a lot more happening. Hmm. Um, so these questions, it's like, well, there's three big components in a seed. There's the seed coat, which is like the outer structure. Then there's the embryonic axis or the embryo. And that's like the little bit that will go on to become the plant. And then there's the cotyledons and that's the storage tissue. Um, Sometimes those come up out of the ground and turn green, but they look like funny, smooth leaves. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, the cotyledons are important. The embryonic axis is important. Whether there's anything in particular that can happen within the cotyledons that would lead to the embryo not being able to germinate, mm. like we just don't know the connections there. We wow. haven't had time or resources to like track those things throughout germination. Yeah. Um, but then even further, like those structures are all multicellular and like what i'm talking about is rna within a cell and then each of the cells has its own store of mrna oh i hadn't thought about it all has to be coordinated to just like wake up together (laughs) yeah and and you know having worked with a variety of you know, species out in the wild, that trigger for, Hey, wake up vastly different oftentimes. And so is it the same MRNAs involved? Like I can imagine this gets very complicated very quickly. And it's fascinating to think that like, yeah, it kind of stalled out in the eighties and is only now really starting to pick back up again with different technology. Like the next stab of the microscope, so to speak, very, very generous term there, uh, phrasing, but what are you going to uncover? It, it's a wild west, I'm assuming, of just anything is possible within the context of like biology here. Yeah, I um, the the trick is picking just one experiment to do next, yeah, and one direction to focus on because there's a lot of ways we can go, right? Um, and so f- and then- for a scientist like you trying to figure that out because right it's publication is the goal here is getting that information out to where it is usable readable citable how do you choose your directions like what directions really interest you the most recently i guess uh and and why you know like what what causes you to pick one avenue over the other when there are so many possible lanes you can get on on that highway (laughs) Mm, this is it's an answer I'm not really happy about, but it is oh, the truth. And okay. it's about the funding. Yeah. It's where I can get funding from. Right. It's, and it's realistic for so many people. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, it is. So I don't get to just do the thing my heart desires. But I try to make the the intersection between my interests and the funder's interests be less of a Venn diagram and more of like, nearly overlapping circles nice yeah closer you can get to that like the more of a sweet spot you're in hey you wanted creativity in your work (laughs) there you go (laughs) (laughs) that's right so i am very fortunate though that 
when I started working at the seed bank in Fort Collins, I focused heavily on soybeans. Mm. And this is helping me now because soybeans are a very important agricultural commodity. Bingo. And the Michigan Soybean Council is very interested in seed quality and how seeds are stored and what happens to seeds during storage because they want high quality protein and oil. They also want high quality seeds to plant in the field the next year. Right. And that's been a research goal that hasn't been addressed recently. Hmm. Not in the past like 10 years, they haven't had people trying to do that research. And like when you say seed quality, do you mean <laughs> things like the ability to germinate and like I don't know damage to the proteins or to the lipids? And they're, they said yes, <laughs> that's exactly what we mean. Wow, that's what I mean too. Yeah, rock and roll. <laughs> so it really is like perfectly overlapping. And soybeans are very big seeds ah, yes, yes. <laughs> when i was reading your work i'm like this has got to be a dream just <laughs> there's so many tiny micro like borderline dust like seeds out there you got a good group in terms of handling <laughs> yes i'm like the embryo is on the outside of the seed so you can just kind of oh nice take off the seed coat right over the embryo and like flick the embryo off, put it in liquid nitrogen, do something else with the cotyledons if you want to. Like, it's just very easy to handle. Nice. You got to do I yourself love- some favors. You really do. <laughs> like, it's work after all. <laughs> That's right. So this is fascinating to think about then because, yeah, there is so many different ways that seed longevity and viability affect the world. Like, we, we really can't draw... A, a line in the sand and say like, ah, oh, this is where it stops being interesting or applicable. You know, seed banking is nothing new. Nature has been doing it for a very long time, but now we're taking advantage of that. And this is the beauty of working with orthodox seeds. But the thing about orthodox seeds, even though like orthodox suggests common, they're everywhere. This is just how it is for most cases is you can dry them down and some of them can last an absurdly long time. And that's, insane to me because like water is the source of life right and so how can you dry something and keep it alive and i'm guessing so much of what you're looking at at the molecular scale has hints at least that is is very relevant to these types of questions yeah it's it's um an exciting time also because as you mentioned mrna has been in the news lately because of these you know new vaccines that have come out to deal with COVID. And so seeds that are hanging out wherever it is they're hanging out and then can germinate a year, 10 years, 140 years later. <laughs> Don't know why I picked that number, oh, but geez, it's uh, a good number. Is there like a thing that <laughs> happened recently that might have made 140 relevant? <laughs> Very cool um, thing by the way. Yeah. Exactly. Um, they, they're able to keep their mRNA intact. So, so they're also doing it without necessarily being frozen or certainly not frozen at minus 80 Celsius, yeah. not even minus 20 Celsius, whatever it is they're doing to keep that RNA from getting broken. It would be really great to know and see if we can apply it to these other mRNA technologies. Right. And that's like a real thing. Yeah. This work will lead to the ability to stabilize mRNA. Right. Because of two callbacks here. One, we're all made of the same molecular basis here. Biology is biology at that level. And two thinking about what you said about shutting things off at different levels, like we know it's important. So how are you keeping this stuff preserved? You being the plant biology itself. And so what does that entail? Like, how do you go about thinking about what is it? Say it's wrapped in something, say it's flooded with something. Like, how do you study 
using this index of knowing how broken things can get or not broken, uh, how do you study this? Like, what do you approach from a molecular scale? Because that, you know, it's not something you can just like, let me look under a microscope. Oh, there it is. Right. Definitely. Well, actually, we are bringing microscopy into this question. Oh, no. but... <laughs> <laughs> not to see like individual mRNAs inside of cells. Okay, good. We're not there yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah, no. So this is like a side soapbox I want to step on for a second. Do it up. When we teach people about doing science in school, we'll talk about having a hypothesis and then you do an experiment and you try and prove or disprove the hypothesis and then it's like done. And I judge science fairs pretty regularly. (laughs) And so I'll see these experiments of like, well, let's see what happens if I play music at the plants really loudly or not. And do they grow better or not? And it's frustrating because as a scientist, that's like the preliminary step before getting to the real experiment. (laughs) Like that is the necessary step, but that's not the kind of hypothesis and hypothesis testing that goes into like this. I keep referring to the tedium. It is tedious, but there is joy in it also. You can have joy in tedium. There's a lot of people geared for that and that's okay. (laughs) Exactly. So like to get to that kind of experiment Mm. with that level of tedium you have to have done some work ahead of time to decide it's worth it to go into this avenue of research. Right. And I just wish there was a way to have that be conveyed more easily in a classroom setting because like there's limitations of time and resources that, so I, I get why it happens like that, but I think it's, it gives people a misconception of what, science is is like right 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 yeah because you know at the end of the day like your time is precious and messing around is fun but uh, you know it's work still and you kind of want it to be productive you know so that your time is valued better (laughs) yeah i mean there is messing around there's always like well while you're doing this we have this other idea just like tap just try it out just use like 10 seeds see what happens Mm. and then like oh my gosh this treatment made all the seeds germinate where none of the seeds germinated and it was only 10. <laughs> so it's not statistically significant, but now we got something like, here. Let's replicate that. Right. And mess with it and like yeah. see what the story is. And then you get into the grant cycle and you're like, I basically had to do the whole experiment to get the funding. to. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> another soapbox, but that's for another day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Anyway, to study this, like how is mRNA preserved or not preserved, like what is going well and what gets broken from all the other data and experiments that have been done, there's the model that we've come up with of like, what does it look like inside of a seed when it's dry? Because that helps give us an idea of like, what kinds of things are and aren't possible in that state. Mm. So one thing that happens is water is gone, but it's replaced by sugars for Mm. the most part. Okay. And they're like weird sugars, like raffinose and stachyose. They're like, I don't even know how many carbons are in them. (laughs) It's like a, it's a polysaccharide. Yes, many. Some combination of glucose, fructose, and antiomers. I don't even know. Fair. Um, but what they do is fill in the space hmm. that the water had occupied, but without being wet. So they, um, you know, keep everything from totally collapsing. And then we can do other studies and see like what the membrane lipids do. We can see where certain proteins are. And this is all with like microscopy studies. Okay. So the vision is 
like the water goes away and instead there's these sugar matrices and everything forms um a glass Ooh. which is a technical term okay so it's a solid that doesn't have a crystal structure right they don't self-organize like quartz does that you see on the shelves of those those shops exactly okay so it's just like and this is where my postdoc advisor chris walters she does physical stuff physical biology so she knows about these differences between strong glasses and fragile glasses and the transition between being a glass and being liquid again wow like what molecular composition leads to a lower glass transition temperature or a higher temperature, things like that. <laughs> Wild. So that's where like the differences between species will come into play. Like mm. something that's very oily, soybean is moderately oily, um, is going to be less solid than something that's more starchy, let's say. Wow. Because the oil at room temperature, just that's naturally there, that's going to be a liquid substrate Yeah. where the starchy stuff doesn't matter. I mean, you'd have to get to a much higher temperature before it would be liquid. Huh. So just this picture of like, okay, everything is sitting around and it's not really moving very much. It's just like packed in there. So... What we know about biology is all based on having water. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And things are liquid and like moving around all the time. So what that tells us is basically these normal biological processes we think about are largely irrelevant. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) I mean, it's actually kind of great. Yeah. So... One thing that I learned in my postdoc experiments was that the mRNA in these soybean seeds that were old had been broken. And this was correlated with how old the seeds were and not strictly with whether or not the seed could germinate. It's a correlation and not a causation. The mRNA is broken and maybe the seed could germinate and maybe not. Um, But it was very important to convince the reviewers for that paper that this was not because of RNA degradation that was caused by enzymes that were active in the seed during storage. Okay. Because those enzymes, those are proteins. They might be there. You might have RNAs around. Sure. But they're stuck. Right. Yeah. They're <laughs> not flowing to and from different things. Yeah. They're just like, maybe they can wiggle a little bit. Sure. But they're not like moving around. Yeah. It's like the scissors uh, in the plastic pack aren't going to hurt you because they're in the plastic pack. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so like with that as a, a model, like, well, what else could possibly be breaking RNA? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a little bit hand wavy, but <laughs> there's ways to get it to be more concrete, but it's like oxidation reactions. It's like uh, random free radicals. Okay. Can come in. They've got high energy. They can cleave a bond within an RNA molecule. And then after that, it's not totally clear. Ooh, love it. So when I look at the RNA in a seed, the main thing that comes out, like the most abundant RNA, is actually the ribosomal RNA. So this is part of the complex of RNA plus proteins that takes the messenger RNA and translates it into the enzyme or protein or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the structure of the ribosome 
you've got mRNA, sorry, you've got ribosomal RNA, and you've got proteins, and they're held together not by covalent bonds. They just are like assembled together. There's hydrogen bonds, like kind of gluing it together. Yeah, okay. So if that RNA has breaks in it, does that mean that the ribosome can't function? Hmm. I don't know. I haven't gotten to explore that yet. Wow. I suspect that to a large extent, it, it still could function. Sure. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's something that I'm excited to look into. So how anything is protected from these free radicals or whatever it is that's cleaving the molecules, it seems like being long is disadvantageous mm. because the longer a molecule is, the more chances there are for a random event to happen at some spot right. on that molecule to make a break. So the shorter molecules are more intact than the longer molecules nice. over time. But there were some exceptions oh, good. looking into this pattern of like long molecules, short <laughs> molecules, amount of degradation. So now we have like a subset of specific mRNAs that it's unclear whether their function is super important for the seed, mm. but they certainly are good targets for seeing what is keeping the mRNA from degrading. Yeah. If we want that, if we want that knowledge, that's where we should look. Right. Because all of them have some possibility of degradation. It is just truly biology will break down over time. And like time obviously is a huge, got to be a huge factor in this. You just give anything enough time, it's going to deteriorate because, you know, we live on an oxygen planet, uh, among other things. But yeah, it, it's just so fascinating to think that like some probably have uses in other ways. We don't know what those functions are yet. You know, that's for someone else, a different lab, a different entire like line of inquiry into this world. But at the end of the day, you've got you you break it down to these small enough molecular scales, especially as you said in biology, being you know, biology is made of the same building blocks. It's, it just feels like the laws of the, the the universal laws of physics and chemistry really start to becoming very important at this phase. They get, they're way more impactful, but then they scale up. And over time, you know, that's where biology starts to get messy. And so, yeah, it, it's just so neat, again, to think of like how little is known, how many mysteries there truly are, because you never know what the next experiment's going to uncover or like, wow, we never actually didn't think of that. Or like, hey, maybe this sugar's different and yeah, uh, just it's so neat to think because again this is governing so many processes not only on the planet you know the biosphere plus humans plus human modern human lifestyle the importance here and then the implications that go beyond just the plant world but you know you think about again seed banking is not new nature has been doing it there are persistent seed banks much to the chagrin of anyone dealing with invasive species a lot of the times they can stay out there for a very long time and a lot of what seed banking is, is refining that process and seeing how far we can stretch it, artificially speaking. And so that's where, you know, how, okay, we did this for 10 years, we did this for 20 years. And and you mentioned that 140 number. And that's one of the reasons I, I, I connected with you is, you know, okay, yeah, we're doing some crazy stuff in negative 80 degree freezers in very high controlled scenarios with a lot of investment, but it doesn't always need to be that way either. And like, I can't imagine 100 years let alone 140 years, and you're finding that without being a negative 80, as you hinted at, things can last a very long time. And so that, to me, is fascinating because I'm imagining you have access to, like, okay, if we do it the perfect way, it looks like this. What does it look like when you just have a jar underground? From <laughs> So talk a little bit about that, realm, And, like, is that helpful in comparing processes in this regard? Yeah. It's been such a... A cool thing to be involved in. <laughs> so what we're referring to is the buried seed experiment that was started by Dr. William J. Beale in 1879. And what he did was fill 20 glass pint jars. Uh, sorry, like flasks. They're not jars. Okay. They're like narrow necked flasks. <laughs> he filled them with sand and seeds from 20 species 
And for each species, he had 50 seeds. Hmm. And he mixed them all up and buried them like 18 inches underground and then walked away. (laughs) Sweet. And he came back five years later and dug one of them up and tested to see how many of those seeds would germinate. And then he did that a few times. Other people took over. The interval was expanded to 10 years. Then it was expanded to 20 years. And so in 2021, I was there to dig up the 16th bottle. Wow. There's four left. Dang. So if we keep going with every 20 years, that's another 80 years to go. No, sorry. (laughs) It's okay. 80 years. I was like, wait, I I know I'm bad at this, but I think you got it. (laughs) I wish everyone could see our faces right now, but we're good. We're good. (laughs) So... When we dug up that bottle, I got to take it to a cold room on campus where I'd set up a microscope. And my hope was to dig out some of the seeds, separate them from the sand, and set them aside so that I could do things like look at their RNA and compare it to RNA of seeds of those species that had been stored in other conditions. But it was like, six in the morning at that point and we'd been up since two and it had been raining and snowing and just cold and then I was in a cold room um so I did I did it for a couple hours but I didn't find anything well (laughs) Um, but then we went on to spread all the sand out and put it in a growth chamber so that it would be under ideal conditions for germination. And then 20 seeds ended up germinating. Wow. And they were all of the same species. Cool. Ish. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, but also kind of interestingly, they're super, super tiny seeds. No, no. <laughs> the luxury is gone. <laughs> I know. But you can easily put like a million of them in a bottle, like no problem. Yeah, there was a different constraint to that level of operation. (laughs) Yeah. So what we don't know about this experiment that I'm really curious to know is what the conditions have been underground. Mm. Like 18 inches in Michigan, it's below the frost line. So it's unlikely that the temperature changed very much. Interesting. Okay. It's just cold, but not frozen most of the time. And then because it's so deep, it's also unclear how much change there was in the moisture. Like Mm. there's a lot of rain here. There's flooding pretty often, not where the seeds are buried, but it's, there's a river that runs through campus and things will just there's a garden that just gets flooded <laughs> like every spring and Fun. every fall yeah. a couple of times. <laughs> so yeah, groundwater so, levels are fluctuating. Yeah. But when I got to dig into the bottle in this cold room, the sand was damp. Hmm. And the last person who had been in that bottle stuffing sand in there was Dr. Beale 141 years Dang. ago. And he dug the sand up. He couldn't go to a hardware store and buy a bag of sand. <laughs> he had to get his own sand. <laughs> Times were different. He knew a spot, you know, yeah. but down by the river. Yeah. You're a sand guy. It's all good. <laughs> and it smelled the same as damp sand today smells. Nice. Which it's a small thing, but. I mean, the sand itself is inert. Yeah. Whatever it is that gives it the smell is something else. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, sand smelled the same yeah. back then <laughs> as so it fun. does now. Like, that's a constant. Yeah, yeah. All right. We, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> and even, so I also went back through the literature and found all of the different publications about each of the bottles oh, that was cool. inert. Which was just fun because people back then wrote in a very different style. It was a lot more snarky. (laughs) 
snarky but poetic in a weird way (laughs) yeah 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 so at the end of the first paper about the bottle that had been underground for five years Beale added a note to anyone contemplating doing a similar experiment do not mix the seeds and the sand together (laughs) (laughs) because although seeds are not rocks they do look (laughs) a lot like rocks (laughs) Uh, that's so if you're trying to find them in amongst the sand, like you need a very dedicated undergrad is what yeah. I learned. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Great lesson in tedium. You're going to have to get used to this. Exactly. There you go. Trial the fire. There you go. Yeah. Hey, we all, we all parodies one way or another in this process. <laughs> nice. But he also, with that first bottle, there's a thousand seeds in there, 50 species, I mean, 50 seeds, 20 species, only 300 some germinated. And that was the most that ever germinated. Oh, wow. And he lamented in, <laughs> I think it was the next paper. I never know. Like I leave them, they dry. I add more water. I let them freeze over the winter. We keep going. More seeds keep germinating. Oh, wow. And I'm never satisfied that all of the seeds that could have germinated were induced to germinate. That is rough. (laughs) And I mean, I still think it's a question for the experiment today. Like, yeah, yeah, we know that 20 of these verbascum seeds grew, but there are 30 others in there somewhere. And did they just not get exactly the right conditions to germinate? Yeah. I mean, Uh, Natural selection has to work on some sort of variation for seed dormancy to have evolved in the first place. So like, yeah, there's got to be within a species across populations, even I would imagine variability in this. And boy, you must be working at the interface with a lot of that uncertainty day in and day out. Woo. (laughs) Yeah. And I want to talk about that, but I want to finish talking about. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. It's okay. There's so much seeds are just amazing. Everything. (laughs) It's true. So the cool thing about the seeds that are underground or in a a soil seed bank compared to seeds in a vault is that they get wet and dry again. Mm. And I am fascinated by what this means. So the wisdom is that seeds being wet leads to their quicker deterioration. And it's certainly true, like, if you have seeds in a tropical environment Mm. where it's humid air and high temperatures, they don't last as long. Yeah. If it's just humid but low temperatures, they'll last slightly longer. If it's dry and low temperatures, they'll last the longest in terms of, like, human-controlled storage. Right. But it is not a common storage protocol to take your seeds and get them wet and then dry them and put them back. (laughs) yeah probably not a good idea (laughs) like it would be a mess like that is just it's already hard to manage a germplasm collection so that's fine (laughs) but it seems like when seeds get wet you know all of these things that are in this glassy matrix they're all just hanging out very still next to each other the water comes in and it's like um, the switch flipped as far as like I conceive of it, mm. like the button on the stop time machine <laughs> has been pushed and it's like, everyone goes back into action. And the little that we know about it is that this is when repair can happen. Oh, wow. So DNA damage is a big problem that it's it's a bigger problem so it's not as good of a sign of like the smaller level damage so that's like there are people who study dna damage in seeds but that's not my expertise but anyway it gets repaired protein damage can be repaired mrna that was damaged can be turned over so it gets broken down new mrnas could be made if needed just like Everything gets like spiffed up and then the water leaves again 
And the seeds are prepared for that because that's just, you know, part of the evolutionary pressures that they've been dealing with forever. But what's crazy is when the seed is on the mother plant and going through its very first drying experience, the mother plant controls the withdrawal of water mm. from the seed because it has this connection to the vascular tissue in the seed. Like they yeah. are together. Right. Then the seed is out in the world and water comes in and water goes out. And when the water goes out, it is not controlled. <laughs> it is just happening from the environment. Yeah. How does the seed get packaged back up the way it was? Or does it get packaged up in some different way when the water comes in for the seventh time? <laughs> different things happen than when it came in the first time like whatever goes on during these brief or i mean maybe they're not so brief right. but these hydration periods that don't end up in the seed germinating i think that's really critical to understand and i think that's part of the secret of how some like I think it's got to be behind how these Swarovascum seeds have survived for so long. <laughs> and it might be able to explain why some of the others didn't survive. It's not so much the drying, maybe, but it's the wetting mm. that's the hard part. So that's something I like to think about a lot. Like, yeah. Is it is it the drying down that kills them? Anything can be dried. <laughs> Is it that the seeds that handle the water coming back in better a certain special way? Those are the ones that can be orthodox seeds and can germinate. Like, boom. Don't know. Another <laughs> just, web oh. on the scientific inquiry tree has been created, right? And exactly. I mean, even it gets my head going. Like, maybe this explains some commonness and rarity in species. Like, some handle it better than others, or the cues are just too infrequent. Like, the amount of inquiry and, and ways this research touches life on this planet is phenomenal. And the amount of mysteries attached to it is terrifyingly exciting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Considering like we've made it this far, not knowing any of this stuff. And now we're just starting to be able to get at some of these ideas and also exciting because just what can we, what, what, what comes from this, you know? <sighs> yeah. I can see why you do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully you took that bike ride. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Cause this is a really cool way to, you know, take a curious observation and just run with it. Yes. And now I have grad students and undergrads. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I get to show the rules of... We will investigate. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, you could see, like, the gears are turning, even as we're having this conversation. It just, it never ends. And that's the mark of, like, how passionate the subject matter can really be. And all of the slog that academia can be and reviewing can be and writing can be, like... All of it is rooted in just, I, I need to know. I want to know. There's so many unknowns and there's so little time. Like, how do we figure this next step out? And what does this next step tell us about all these other things? Like, you could just see it churning within you. And that is so fun to see because passion is absolutely contagious. <laughs> yeah. And now I have buddies. I have a network. Yes. And they are people that I never thought I would be intersecting with. But, but here you are. Protein folding and synthetic designer biology and tardigrades and <laughs> soybeans and weeds. It's just like anyone who studies plants <laughs> has to think about seeds. Yeah. And so I, I have an angle with yeah. <laughs> anyone that I talk to. It's like, oh, but did you try germinating this way? How do you uh, store all your germplasm? Like, what are you doing? I think the conservation field really needs to talk to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, which which umbrella of plant science do you want to hang out with this week or next week or next month or next, you know? It's incredible. So with that in mind, Dr. Fleming, how do people read about your work and find out more to contact you with all of their questions and potential collaborations. And hopefully let's knock on some wood here. Funding. Yeah. 
Um, the best way to get in touch with me is just through email, which is, should I just give you my... I will put it up in the show notes. You don't have to remember it off the top of your head. Yeah, no one will have to pull over or get out of the shower to write this down. (laughs) Awesome. And then um, I'm also involved. So this, one of these big networks that I'm involved in is through um, funding that I was part of that we received from the National Science Foundation and it's studying life without water. And it's called WALI, the Water and Life Interface Institute. And the website there is wali.science. So W-A-L-I-I dot science. Awesome. I um, will make sure all of those are in the show notes again. So no one has to remember that to write it down. But uh, Dr. Fleming, this is incredible. You are truly at the interface of some of the most important aspects of biology on this planet. And it's its ability to impact every aspect of the stuff we do, let alone all the things we do and don't realize impact our lives and the world around us is phenomenal. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. It's a very complex and interesting world. <laughs> like I have to take a <laughs> breath to like, oh my gosh, it is. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy people like you are brave enough to just start chipping away at whatever piece and following those lines of evidence. So thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. It is my pleasure. And I wanted to add one thing before we... Please do. Is you mentioned at the very beginning how your exposure to seeds is someone like giving you a seed packet. And that is one way to do stuff with seeds. But they're in all the fruits and vegetables. They're <laughs> in your spice cabinet. You yes. want to grow poppies? You can get the poppy seeds from your jar of poppy seeds in your spice cabinet and they will grow. Love the it. mustard seeds will grow. They are real seeds. It's true. It's true. I wonder, you know, like it's sad that some people aren't exposed to that and don't realize that, but this is why we do what's why we're having these conversations. Yeah. No, it, it blew my mind to realize like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, the fennel seeds, it says seed right on there. I can grow these. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I did. I've learned you can't grow anise from seed because they roast the little, little seeds in them. Yeah. Because like, yeah, how cool is anise? But yeah. Either way, toasted or roasted yeah. or yeah, a little too dry. That. We'll say. Yes. <laughs> There's a limit. <laughs> but yeah, go forth, conquer the seed cabinet, see what grows, see how long they were dating, when were they harvested. So many questions just in our kitchen. That's right. I love it. Well, again, Dr. Fleming, thank you so much for your time and for your passion. We really appreciate it and uh, keep up the great work. Matt, it is my pleasure. I hope I get to talk to you again sometime. Yes, please keep me posted. A lot of good stuff over the horizon, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Cheers. All right. How interesting was that? There are so many mysteries, but so many cool things trickling away in Dr. Fleming's lab. And I thank her for taking time out of her very busy schedule to talk with us about it. As always, you can find all of the relevant links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com. Just navigate to each episode and click to learn more. You can also find ways to support this podcast over there, such as picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. You can also find all episodes of this podcast over at the website. You can stream them or download them. All you have to do is use the search bar to search for a specific topic or episode number. It's all there for free. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Again, Happy New Year. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, tell your friends, and keep checking back for more. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.